This is Brett Jones from Relationship Warrior Podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs, singles, and couples who want to have it all across all areas of life and know that relationship is the primary area that you have to be magnificent in. So, John, um, today's going to be a little different. We won't be really diving into the relationship area, but I wanted to dive into your own journey spiritually. Okay. So, you know, from what I've read, uh, you've had a very interesting uh, life from that point of view, particularly early on. And later. And later, yeah. So you're with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi originally. Those are my, those are my early years. I also yes. spent, uh, must have gone 23. Since after I turned 50, I must have gone to India 23 times. And then I've been to China studying Taoism for uh, 10 times. So okay, I've done well, a lot. So tell us about those early years. What sort of um, took you in that direction? Why? Why did you decide to? I, I know from you know some readings I've done about you that um, you know Paramahansa Yogananda was an early influence. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Okay, that sounds great. Are we beginning? Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I my mother is rather a unique lady as well as my father. Uh, they're both Stanford graduates. Uh, my mother was from California, Los Angeles, City of the Angels. And she married my father and he was from Oklahoma and they moved to Houston. And Houston was not that spiritual place in terms of spirituality that goes beyond religion, okay? So uh, we were Episcopalians only because that was uh, more of a liberal church. They didn't require much of you. And it was closest to our house. <laughs> That's what my mother told me. Uh, <laughs> She, she basically, by the time I came along, the fifth child, she, they wanted to baptize me. And she said, no, no, I'll let him wait till he's grown up to make his own choices. And in Sunday school, school at uh, the church, they kicked me out because I asked too many questions. Uh, ever since I was three years old, you know, because basically if you're in your logical mind and God is all merciful, why are sick people here? <laughs> you know, why do we have floods yeah. and all this, you know, yeah, yeah. God's love. So, you know, if you're a logical person, all of that turns into kind of like uh, comic book stuff. But there's yes. essence, there's truth behind it for a childlike mind, you know, superstitious mind. They're, in a sense, metaphors for various things. Yeah. So uh, I'm very spiritual and I have a tremendous relationship with Christ and so forth, but all the other greats as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, these are human beings that uh, shine divine light through them. They've achieved he heights of uh, illumination. So anyway, for me at three years old, my dad taught us yoga. Okay, so I was doing oh, wow. with our family. You know, other kids are playing soccer or something or football. Yeah. Uh, not that I didn't play those games as well. My dad had six boys and he uh, and, a, and a daughter. Uh, and we, we are on that big mat, all of us all doing our lotus positions. I'm standing on my head, you know, in lotus. People come over. I was like the, the champion of all of them, a little, little guy. I was the littlest. And I would do headstands, handstands, no, yeah, even handstands and uh, lotus position. I'd sit around in lotus all the time. So, and also, you, you know, if you, if you believe in past lives, I mean, clearly, you know, <laughs> I've been a monk, uh, a yogi and past lives without a doubt. Cause I used to sit by the, the heater in the morning in the winter time and just go into a trance. I didn't know it was a trance at the time. But my, my mother was always so in awe of me because she was a spiritual lady. 
And she knew what was going on, but she never presumed to know anything, you know, let him discover on his own. And I can actually trace back some of my theories back to when I was eight years old, not about relationship, but about the universe. Mm -hmm. And because I have a whole body of information, of spiritual information. And it was just observations I made as a child. And, and, you know, my mother was very impressed. I just remember being this way. She was very impressed by it, which I would sit and uh, I'd be in this meditative state, uh, sitting by the warmth of the heater. And, and then on rainy days, I would cry. And she said, what are you crying about? And I said, all of the people who live under the bridges, they're very cold. And I'd never seen people who lived under the bridges. I lived in a very nice neighborhood. Uh, never seen it at all. It wasn't until I was 18 that I saw poverty. Uh, I li actually grew up in the most beautiful neighborhood in the world, still to this day, in my opinion, River Oaks, Houston, Texas. It's where all the oil people live. My dad, grandfather was an oil man one of the first ones mm -hmm. at his own oil company. You know, my dad was the vice president of the company. He was a geologist, PhD. And so all of this, uh, actually, I don't know if he had a PhD, but my older brother got a PhD but the, uh, in, in geology. But he was, you know, doing his business thing, but he was really more involved with the family. He helped charities. He started the first uh, sporting team for the underprivileged. And I didn't know who those people were until I was a grown-up. Where'd dad go? You know, he was always helping the poor. And, but he was very spiritual and my mother was very spiritual in two different ways. He was, had a Christian background and so forth. He didn't go to church because he felt they were too uh, controlling and, and dogmatic, but he was spiritual. And, but he was a student of the Kabbalah, you know, he had a whole bookcase, you know, like I have bookcases filled with books on mysticism and the Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. So that was my dad. And he never talked to me about that at all, except occasionally, as I got older, he would share some experience of illumination. And, and just to sort of give me a hint of what's possible. And my mother, she started the Aquarian Age bookshelf. And the way she did this is that she, she had a, a library as big as mine as well. And I've got one in my house. This is my office. And all of spiritual esoteric books, Yogananda and Ramana Maharshi and astrology and Tarot and occult and all those kind of things, as well as Christian mysticism, Buddhist mysticism, Taoist mysticism. She had an extensive library that I, I've never seen anybody with a library like that. And I remember when I turned, I think when I turned 13 or, or 12, maybe it was 12, uh, my youngest brother was definitely going through school now. And she said, well, now that you kids are grown up, I'm going to uh, create a bookstore. And I want to make sure that's okay with everybody because, you know, she was devoted herself to us as children. We also, of course, mom, <laughs> what's the problem? So what she did is bought another house and never put up an advertisement, put a little sign out front and said the Aquarian Age bookshelf. And people would wander in and she would say, this is my library and I'm happy to show you a book that might be good for you and you can borrow it. So it was free borrowing. And then people wow. wanted to then buy those books. And, and you know, part of it is, you know, she didn't have to make money. First, my dad made a good living, but her father was a multimillionaire in Los Angeles in 1920. <laughs> so you can imagine what kind of trust fund she had. And so she didn't ever think of money. She was very humble. And the funny thing about it, I thought we were the poor people in the world <laughs> because she was so humble and not flashy. And we lived in this neighborhood. She founded, she was the first house in River Oaks, Houston, 
which turned out to be the most beautiful place in Houston where all the rich people lived. And so these mansions all around, and yet we were living in this humble, nice house, a nice house for sure, you know, five bedrooms, a white house with a big lawn back in front and playground and all this stuff to play with. And, you know, within, what was it, uh, maybe a, a 15 minute walk, a country club where all the wealthy people went. And I always thought we were the poor people, but that was cool, you know, my parents were happy. So that's the context that I grew up into, one of a sense of confidence that you have what you need. Right. And there, there wasn't any addictions, there wasn't any fighting, there wasn't any yelling and screaming. It was literally, I didn't, all the stuff people, I became a therapist to try to figure out people. I said, why are you so unhappy? What's going on here? <laughs> it was interesting to me. So that's, I have an example, and part of why I can teach the Mars-Venus idea so well is, when I grew up, I had a mother who was happy all the time. She never complained. I, I, I literally never complained. So, and never got upset. And part of it was, you know, this was Texas. So six boys, how do you not get upset with six boys? She would, she'd be firm. She said, if you don't listen to me now, I'm going to tell your father. So all his right. job was a provider, but also he was the policeman. You know, he was the enforcer, yeah. which is old fashioned stuff. It's so... It, it, and if you got enforced, he'd pull out that belt and you'd say, bend over and he'd whip you, you know, until, you know, you got in trouble. That's how people did it back then. And now what's, I had- a, What's interesting, John, is there's a lot of influences there, isn't there? Like there's so much influence there from, from both your parents, from a spiritual aspect, um, really pushing you into, into that, um, that area. It's, it's quite interesting. Creating a tremendous safety for me to explore being that way. You know, it just resonated yes. and, you know, I, but they didn't push it on me in any way. They just were examples of, no. of people who were devoted to, to spiritual growth in a humble kind of a way, had a, a lovely relationship, but the key to it, which is something that most people don't get the advantage of is feeling an abundance in life always you know she lived in a, a world of grace she always told me if i was crying or upset about something she says you know johnny we can't always get what we want but we always have what we need and that's a theme of my life you see when you when you live your life which is i i have right now what i need then you're never stressed the stress is very little and what she would say and if you don't have what you need you're looking in the wrong direction and I wrote a whole book on that, okay? So that's called How to Get What You Want, Want What You Have, My Secret of Success, which is always to find if you're not getting what you need from your partner, you have 12 other needs. Focus on those and you can get what you need there. And then if, you, if you're upset with somebody, often you need to give more to yourself. So how do you self-love? You know, another need yes. is educating ourselves. Another need is depending on others. Another need is for a higher power. So we have another need is selfless service. Another need is, is work where you get rewarded. So there's a lot of basic needs that we have and we can't just focus on one. And if we are, that one will never fulfill us. It will fill us while we're filling up with that, like a tank. It fills up, we feel good, good, good. But once it's full, it can't make us feel better. Just like if you're hungry and you're eating a meal, oh, it tastes so good. And at a certain point, you can't keep eating because it doesn't make you full, you're full. So what happens to us psychologically is that when we fill up from one need, we're so happy, and then it, it stops. It can't continue to make us happy. So we have to look to the other needs to fill us up and then come back to that one. So that's a whole theme. But I just saw my mother having so much fulfillment in her life, not knowing that other people didn't have this. And it was an attitude of grace, which is you always have what you need, not always what you want. 
But if you're unhappy, you focus on what you're miss, what you're overlooking and find it. So that was all the setting that I grew up in. And she had her Aquarian Age bookstore. And then people wanted to buy the books. You know, when you have a book, you want to own it. And so then they would, then she started ordering books for people. <laughs> and that became the biggest spiritual, esoteric, mystical bookstore in the country. And at the same time, in the same year she developed that, in Los Angeles, and if people are in LA, they know about a classic place, which was called, oh no, I can't even remember the name of it, but there was a huge, there was a very famous, mm, I can't even remember, so many years ago, but it was a, another bookstore in LA that was quite famous because they advertised and they promoted and everything, and it was a wonderful bookstore. I had access to all these books when I was growing up, but I have to say Yogananda book was uh, the mm -hmm. biggest influential book for me, and then Ramana Maharshi. Those two books were very influential for me. And when I was a baby, my parents actually drove from Houston, Texas to the Yogananda ashram for Yogananda to bless mm -hmm. me, their child. <laughs> I mean, this is like- In what way, John? In what way did they influence you? What did they take out of those? Uh, there's a little bit of a disconnect on that, but uh, in what way they do that? Well, they we just drove to California to meet Mokta, well, to meet Yogananda, and and I was a baby, and they wanted him to sort of bless me, and he he never did, at least in the physical form, because when we got there, they said he was in Mahasamadhi, so that was a nice way of saying he was passing, but uh, you know I still remember being in the ashram. The okay. funny thing about it, what I remember in the ashram, since you're asking me stories about my life, I'll share a few. Uh, it, I just remember my dad so being- what, what did you take out of that book? Okay, we'll talk about Muktananda. I mean, about Yogananda. Okay. Uh, what I got out of Yogananda was I was a fan as a child, eight years old. Every Saturday morning, I would go and read Marvel comics. Uh, the, the convenience store, the 7-Eleven, was uh, like about a 15-minute walk. And on Saturday morning, we walked there and there'd be a whole bundle of new Marvel Comics, DC Comics. That's the superpowers and the Superman, the Fantastic Four and Wonder Woman. And I was fascinated with powers and potential, you know, the potential to have more. Clearly I was born to develop my potential. I still develop more potential, but uh, it just keeps going more and more and more. But the, I was drawn to that and try to figure out where I was going with that point. What was the question you just asked? So what did you take out of Yogananda? Oh, Yogananda. So Yogananda was now a book, uh, you know, what is it, the name of that book? Um, Autobiography of a Yogi. That was yes. like Marvel Comics, okay? That was amazing superpowers, you know, being able to mentally telepathate, beings from an out esoteric beings that run the world, you know, all this sort of stuff was very exciting for me, deep states of meditation. And I didn't know that I already had that. Uh, when I was, uh, I think I was nine years old, uh, I went to my friend's ranch in Texas and I had the first unbelievable spiritual experience and I didn't know it was a spiritual experience till later in life when I actually consciously created spiritual experiences. But when that horse took off into a gallop and I'm all by myself with a friend, no adults around and we're free souls and that horse went off into a gallop it was like liberation. I still remember as an adult when I became in a certain sense liberated 
it's hard for me to say enlightened states because you just go more and more and more. And there's this idea that you sort of hit this place and you don't go beyond. <laughs> That's just nonsense, in my opinion. It's always more and more and more. And as long as you have gravity pulling you down on this planet, there's more. And that's your stuff that's holding you down. And you just be able to bring in more. And once you can clear your own self, what you then do is you clear your children and you clear your family and your parents and whatever. All their issues start working through you. And then you start working through the whole DNA, which is one with the planet. And now you're working through planetary stuff. So there's that's called the bodhisattva, where you... You, your, your soul says, you know, nobody leaves till we all get there. And so we stay and we help and we help. And, and clearly, you know, I've achieved a lot of stuff in past lives because this was also easy for me to slip into. There was no convincing me. Uh, but, but still, I'm a normal kid growing up, don't know any of this esoteric stuff. And, I just and, it's, know almost, and it's almost like um, those parents were the perfect place for you to bring those gifts out in, in this lifetime. Oh, absolutely. Oh, there were... Completely. I, yes. I just feel so graced by that. And then what happened is uh, here I'm a teenager and I've got a motorcycle. I'm in a motorcycle club. It's called the Munchers. You know, I got kicked, almost kicked out of my junior high school because I, has, I was making out with girls in the audiovisual room. I'm a rule breaker. You know, I, I, what you could do is you could get, you could write permits for kids to get out of classes to help you set up the audiovisual equipment. And I was in charge of that. So I had a special room. I'd get my girlfriends to come in there. We'd make out. We'd do stuff. And they knew something was going on. I remember the vice principal bringing me into his office and saying, you know, we knew you're doing something. What is it? We know you're doing it. He kept wanting me to be feel guilty. And I kept saying nothing, nothing, nothing. Because I knew they couldn't know anything. Finally, he says, you know, Gray, you're this close to being kicked out. I said, you can't kick me out because I'm leaving. And then I left. <laughs> and then I went to another junior high school. And within six months, I did the same thing there and went back to the original one. It was very funny, my little rebellious spirit. And I was in a motorcycle club, never hurt anybody, but we dressed up like hell's angels. We drive around on our motorcycles, make a bunch of noise, had girlfriends. So I was very active. I got high. I did that after Woodstock. What happened? We all got high at the rock concerts. And then suddenly I crashed. That was three days of high, big crash. And I remember that was the turning point in my life. I like hit bottom. I mean, to really uh, be drained out after an exhausting weekend and being high on, on, on various stimulants and so forth, hallucinogenics and all that. I was really into that. I loved that. I loved sex, that. It was bring them two together, it was heaven. Then I crashed and I just felt lost. You know, I felt there must be another way. And yeah. Then my, you know, my, I had my own room in a garage apartment, you know, my parents had the big house with all the other kids and I had all the posters around me and the black light and the strobe lights and I bring girls into my room. It was all cool life. You know, I had a really fun time in junior high school. And then yep. my mother came in one day after Woodstock and I was laying there and I was just lying and I was listening to the Moody Blues song, Ohm. Mm -hmm amazing song and I, I was just so drawn to that song and I play it over and over and my mother came into my room and she immediately went to kind of an altered spiritual state she glowed she just goes oh what is this you know what is this you know for her to think my son listening to ohm and so we sat we just listened to ohm and she really loved it and then she looked at one of my posters and she said who is that who is that and I said I don't know and she says you know I think that's the Maharishi 
because I had a Beatle poster of the Beatles yep. and the Rolling Stones and Donovan and the and Maharishi sitting in between all of them. And she said, uh, who is that? I said, I don't know. She says, you know, I think that's their guru. And that was it. She just let it, then push it on me. And then yep. later I found out that I asked somebody, why the Beatles with this guru? And they said, the Beatles said, you can get high on meditation and you don't wow. come down like on drugs. So I thought okay. this is the answer. Now, right. as soon as I thought that, a day later, I'm at the bowling alley and I'm picking up my little brother at the bowling alley in my car. I must've been like 16 years old, 17 around that time. And one of my friends was there and he said, John, I know you're into martial arts. I've always into, been into gurus. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was like on the front of martial arts magazines. I studied karate and I'm a little guy, so it got a lot of attention. Uh, and I really was the first karate kid because it's this little kid who has all these uh, pictures of him doing outstanding feats. And I wasn't really a fighter and I didn't fight anybody much. But you probably like the philosophy more, John, than the actual martial arts. That's right. That's right. And also the discipline. I knew it all. I was a brown belt, you know, the youngest brown belt they ever seen and studying to be a black belt. And then I shifted gears to meditation. And in meditation, it was uh, how it happened as there I am and talk about destiny and things falling into place because yes. everybody knew I was into karate because at my school, I was the karate kid because the, the, my guru, the, the teacher, he put out flyers at my school and I'm on the cover of the flyers. So then everybody right. had to fight me, which was a big deal. And then I would always say, okay, I'll fight you after school at the seven, at the, at the gas station. And then I would never go. I don't know what happened, but I never had to hurt anybody. So, or get hurt. So, but anyway, big story fast. Then, then I go into, um, Help me with what my point just was. You're going in so my you go, You're heading towards Maharishi. So you oh, did yes, yes. I'm at the bowling today. alley. So yes. I'm at the bowling alley, and a friend of mine says, "Hey, John. You know, there's a um, uh, a samurai warrior demonstration, and you know, I'm into martial arts. So I thought samurai warrior. I'd like to see that. Whatever that is. And uh, I went upstairs to the room above the bowling alley to see the sam. It was lecture hall." And it was a seminar. My friend didn't know the difference between seminar and samurai. samurai. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I came in the room and there the first guy I saw who was not the teacher yet, but he was a teacher of transcendental meditation that taught the class. But before okay. that was a, was a really cool looking guy with a red beard and blonde hair, just like the picture of Jesus. I mean, he was really, <laughs> like, you know, my mother had a big picture of Jesus on the mantle. And this yep. guy looked just like Jesus. And he was dressed in this very cool hippie outfit and everything. And, and I said, hey, man, what's this? And he said, oh, this is meditation. You know, it's fantastic. I said, how long have you been meditating? He said, two months. I said, really, really? And he said, yeah, right away you become enlightened. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, you get powers. And I said, what kind of powers? He said, oh, you can astral travel. You can... <laughs> you, you, you know, you're happy all the time, you know, you could read minds, yeah. you know, he went all, all these powers. And I said, in two months, he said, yeah, two months. <laughs> and, I, and then I said, you have all those powers? Yeah, but they're not that important. I have the enlightenment. That's what's important. Anyway, so I was like, wow, you know, it's like somebody selling you on something. I heard the lecture and they didn't say anything about that in the lecture. They just mm -hmm. gave the TM lecture, standard introductory lecture. I loved it. It felt like you know, this was the right place. This is a moment that I could never forget. And I wow. remember that teacher and I remember that moment. I remember most of all going home to my dad, who now I'm two hours late, right? And he says, where have you been? 
have you been doing drugs or something? And I said, no, no, dad, I went to a talk on transcendental meditation. He said, really? I said, yes. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> what did he say? John, and I, how, old were you, how old were you then? 16, 16. 16, wow. Around 17, 16 or 17. Yeah. And, and, and in that moment, I said to him, he said, so what did you hear? And I gave the whole lecture exactly. There's no other lecture I could give like that. I mean, I, I don't have some super memory. But that yeah. lecture was already written in my heart. It was an appointment with my destiny. Really, right. I just, and I could for years, even probably right now, I could give you almost the same lecture word for word. It's yeah, just, friend. it's amazing, amazing synchronicity of this. I talked to my mother, the Maharishi, this is Transcendental Meditation, this is the lecture, it's all makes sense to me. I then went and, and became initiated in Transcendental Meditation, one of the greatest decisions I ever made in my life. I remember the day, I remember the moment, the whole thing, and I learned to meditate. That was it. And I loved it. And then the Maharishi, the next summer, came to America. And the first time he'd come to America, or maybe second time. And he did a one-month course in Poland Springs, Maine. And he did a one-month course in, in um, uh, Eureka, California. So the East Coast and the West Coast. 30 days of spending all day with this guy with 2,000 people in a room. All right. So now they said I was too young to go. I went anyway. I got on a plane and I went anyway. And so they had to take me when I was there. I got there a little late to the first talk and I was in the back and I said, I'm never gonna sit in the back again because I couldn't even see them. So then, but they wouldn't let me sit up front yet to be VIPs. So I asked who gets to be up front, the VIPs, the teachers of meditation, all the important people. So there was an usher that kept people from going up front. So the next day I got there really early and pretended to be the usher. So I started telling people, you can't come up here unless you have the right badge. <laughs> and I sat next to the Maharishi up front every time. Uh, you know, I just, this is how I did it. And then I wanted to do the next one month course and, and Eureka. And they said, it's sold out. Nobody can come from the first one to the second one. It's already sold out. I got on a plane. I went there. I hitchhiked from San Francisco all the way up to Eureka. I didn't have a place to stay. I didn't have any money. <laughs> And I didn't have a right to go in because they weren't selling tickets anymore. And I thought, how do I get in? Well, I'm a little guy. So Mari, she would always come in the side door to the lecture hall. And he always had an entourage of VIP people, you know, very important, rich people or whatever. <laughs> and I yep. didn't have anything. So all I would do is before he go to the door, I'd slip in behind him and pretend to be his assistant. And I would get in, nobody would question me because I'm right with the Maharishi. And I would go sit right in the section where they all sat and always pretended to be his assistant. It wasn't until a few years later that I actually became the assistant. <laughs> I, I did those two courses. This is called determination and persistence and I'm gonna do it. And then he had his only three month course in America at Estes Park to train teachers of transcendental meditation. And there were about, I don't know, I suppose 100 people there, 150 people. And again, they had an age limit and I was too young to go in. I went anyway and I said, I'm going to be here. And so they let me stay, but they say, you can't become a teacher. And every, you know, I went to the whole course. And at the end of the course, they're making everybody teachers. You have to learn all this stuff. And they said, you're too young to be a teacher. And I went into him and I said, I deserve to be a teacher. I'm better than any of these people. I can do it. And I talked him into making me the youngest teacher of transcendental meditation at the time. Then what I did is I ended up going to every course he ever taught. He personally taught. And that was over a couple of year period. Then he started having other people like me teach them and other people would teach them. 
and there'd be videotapes of him as well. And I was basically helped to put that course together because I had done to every course. I could be, I could say and answer any of his questions, any, whatever he'd say, I knew. Yeah. Then I became his personal assistant and that was a great, great time for me and lived with him. You know, the whole period of that was nine years and I wanted to be wow. just like him. I was a so, pure so John, what, what age period was that from? How old were you when you began uh, his, as, as that? And then how long for nine years? Uh, I think 18 to 27, 27 wow. and a half, like around that time. Wow. And during that time, because once I hooked on meditation and I wanted to be like him, I wanted enlightenment. I wanted, again, the powers, you know, supposed to levitate, yes. supposed to do all this stuff. And I wanted to have the Yogananda book, you know, Yogananda talked about it. Here's a guy who's still alive and I can get it there. This is all great. So I went off to be with him and, you know, I was his best student and there's no question about this. They had a big a display and 3,600 centers with his picture and then a picture of me doing this bouncing technique where we're levitating, but there I am right there smiling like I am now with a yep. line over to research on my brain function because right. I was a really good meditator. Uh, and I meditated, you know, last three years when I was more in a reclusive state, wasn't doing so much. I was uh, probably meditating 12 to 18 hours a day. I, I yeah. you know, I only had a bowl of food. food. I, uh, I'd go for months, month at a time without talking, going into deep meditations, having all kinds of celestial experiences, out of the body experiences, all the kind of stuff that Yogananda talked about. Yep. And I was just happy as could be. But my brother, Jimmy, was not. Jimmy is my younger brother, and he was bipolar. Had right. him come to Switzerland with me, where we were with the Maharishi, and medita meditation just didn't help him. Maybe a little, but it didn't help. Yep. And my heart was just broken because he was suffering, and he was depressed, and he would go a little crazy. And so he went back to America, and I just couldn't be happy then. You know, I got to go take care of my brother. Right. So that's when I left the Maharishi. That's when I stopped being... Uh, part of that organization. I just said, this was good for me, but it's not good for my brother. Um, okay. I, I want to find a solution for Jimmy. Yep. So I thought, okay, there's all these new therapies and new psychology that was gestalt and est was there and loving relationship training and uh, rebirthing, all these sort of new sort of things were happening in California. I thought maybe this could help Jimmy and, and mind dynamics and all these things. And so I, and the university is studying psychology. So I tried it all. I went back, I became a PhD in psychology. I unfortunately could not help my brother, but in that process, and I'm shortening it all down. I mean, there's a lot of fun stories here. One, I'll tell you one, okay, which is I'm, I'm back in California and you know, I'm expecting God to just deliver to me what I need. Because <laughs> you know, okay. always had before and nobody meets me at the airport nobody's there i'm all by myself i got a couple hundred dollars that's about it and i'm in la and i remember buying a a bottled water and it being like three dollars and my it was uh you know in those days perrier water was very expensive and cheaper now but expensive then and just feel like i can barely afford this water what am i going to do i said god will provide and a lot of things happened then. Then I remembered a friend of mine that that uh, who was actually the guy with the long blonde hair and the big red beard. He yep. had already left the TN movement, and I thought I'd give him a call and I asked him if he could find a place for me. And he he said, "Yeah, I know a place in Santa Barbara where there's a house with extra rooms and a kind of an estate where people rented out parts." And so it, I got there, and it was like a, you know fifty dollars or something to get the room. And so I, I'm in there, and you have to share the refrigerator with other people. And I met the refrigerator. And this woman walks in, her name's Catherine, 
and Catherine walks in and I'm like amazed because this is the woman who was on my, in my dream the day before, when I was, before I was coming, okay, the two days before actually that. And it was a sexual dream. Now I hadn't had a sexual dream in nine years. I've been pure <laughs> celibate. Can, can I just mention that, John, you were celibate for nine years, weren't you? Is that the, yeah, the story? Celibate. Real celibate. None of the other guys, they were that monks, the Hindu monks there. And none of them were real celibate, I found out later. Some were with girls, but others were just masturbating. I yeah. never masturbated for nine years. Right. Okay, I pulled that energy into my meditation. That's why you can do meditation for 10 or 15 hours without ever getting tired or bending over or anything. <laughs> my body was doing this the whole time. Basically, I'm having sex with the universe, okay? But it wasn't like sex, sex. It was just energy and ecstasy and whatever going up. Yeah, yeah, you're getting high in another way. Yeah, getting high another way. But it was after about six years of real pure celibacy, what happens for me, I'll put it this way, a real yep. celibate, if they're perspiring, it smells like semen. And semen's delicious, <laughs> okay? It's a wonderful smell. Uh, <laughs> And so then I, I, you know, that was the fuel behind the higher consciousness was celibacy. And wow. I still teach couples how to have sex and still be celibate. Okay. That's why I have so much energy at 69 years old and then yep. have so much sex. When you learn how that, to have that sex. That comes from the Tao stuff. We'll get, we'll get to that later, but that comes okay. from the Tao That's stuff. That's Tantra right? and Tao. I started teaching that in 1979. That's wow. one of the first uh, Tantra classes to be taught in America. I called it spiritual sexuality, and of course, it was found. It was based on Indian tantra. Later, I learned Taoist, which actually I think is a better system. Mine is actually, I think, updated system. You know, all these things are good, but everything needs to be updated because we are different beings today. So yes. anyway, where should I go back to? Oh, I'll so go back Catherine, to back back to meeting the girl. To meeting the girl. So she was the yeah. girl in the dream. So I couldn't believe it. I said a prophetic dream, and you know, she's the girl I just had sex with in a dream, or at least something like that. And <laughs> uh, then, so I, I, uh, I tried to introduce myself. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. Okay, I'm just, who's this guy? And, and, and then she had this little cottage on the property. She was renting it. And so I just went out and sat in lotus position and meditated all day long in front of her cottage as she went and came and gone. So finally she said, okay, okay, who are you? Because who can sit that's, in lotus position for that, hours? That's funny hours because hours? You, know, you know women well, right? So she would have loved just the perseverance of that. That's I'm, right, I'm persistence. persistence and the spirituality. Because what I found out, yeah. once we started talking, she said, so who are you? And I said, well, I've been with the Maharishi. I'm his ex-personal -pers ex assistant, you know, and, and all this good stuff. And she says, amazing, amazing, because she was the ex-personal assistant to Claire Prophet. Claire Prophet was a woman guru who had moved all her people up to Oregon or something like that. And she'd been yeah. with her for many, many years. And okay. she now has sort of outgrown the guru stage. And she was now, you know, figuring out what she was going to do. Talk about synchronicity. So yeah. then I said, so what do you do now? And she says, well, I'm a massage, massage therapist. And would you like a massage? She said, I said, okay. And she said, all right. And she put her table out and then she said, now you have to take off your clothes. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> and a sheltered life, really? And so I got naked and I'm lying on this table and she's massaging me. And suddenly another part of me wakes up that hadn't woken up. I won't say never woke up before. I mean, I could yeah. be in deep meditation and erections would happen. You have to just sit there and wait till it goes away. You take yep. that energy and you bring it up. You just don't touch it and indulge in that, in that experience. Sometimes I have to take a cold shower or cold bath. That was the real power. But uh, 
to train myself to bring the energy up. But there I am and I'm lying on the table and something's happening down south and she's massaging me. And she said to me, she's asking me questions. She said, so why is it that you're celibate? And I still remember that moment going, gee, I seem to have forgotten why I'm celibate. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up having sex and that day and it went on for three days with lunch breaks and dinner breaks. Okay, this just kept going on and on and on because my body wasn't about to ejaculate. And even if I, I, I thought you're supposed to, you know, I didn't have a knowledge that you have sex in, without having to ejaculate. It took me three days to get to that place. Yeah. And then, you know, that was all, what happened then after I ejaculated was a sense of complete depletion, okay? It was literally like I lost 10 years of spiritual development. Although I knew I was, uh, yeah, I was still quite high, but not, it was just like a, a emptiness happened. My fuel was gone. And I felt no attraction to her at all uh, it, at that point. You know, it was just depletion. And even to this day, you know, so many men, when they, when they have sex, they don't realize it. But after sex, their testosterone goes down 50%. Yeah. Now, my testosterone at my age is not down like the average. But because I practice this stuff, it's 50% higher than when actually I was a young man, uh, a young man's testosterone levels. That's because... I've learned not to how to build testosterone and not lose it by ejaculating. And that's just something you can learn to do. Uh, it's really wonderful to do. It's the, I think we're all, you know, we all have a monkey brain, right? You know, we, we now know that, that scientifically the DNA of our brain is mostly monkey and some of it is like a dinosaur, snake. It's just the instincts, the unconscious is really eons, millions of years old that develops all this and then comes the conditioning of a monkey. The only part of the brain that has human DNA is the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And, you know, who knows, you know, many people think that that's not even human DNA, but that was DNA, uh, DNA injections from alien beings, just like we can now do DNA stuff. They were more advanced and the Sumerian texts talk about that, how these giants came from outer space and they came and they took the humans and make them into more intelligent and gave them DNA. That's just that. I don't know if that happened, although it's a, Clearly, we have a part of our brain that mysteriously developed on the planet, which is allowing us one ability, which is so important. And that is the ability, which we often say in religious terms, free will. Mm -hmm. It's only here that we have free will. And what free will means is that you can choose what you're going to do. You can't choose your reactions. Yeah. You see, things can upset me, whatever, but I can choose how to process it, to let it go. I can choose not to act on it. I can choose not to believe it. You know, and so this is the monkey brain as pure conditioned reactions. We, we think we're in control of our lives, but freedom is only when you have blood flow to the front part of the brain. And when people are experiencing stress, cortisol response or adrenaline response, blood flow stops to this part of the brain. So literally you are just a reactive being. Uh, you, you really have no control except monkey see monkey do. You do and see what other people do. You react the way your parents did, the way their parents did, their parents did, all the way back to where their parents were monkeys. So, I mean, think about it. Every couple, not every couple, but so many couples, they want to be married. They love each other. They're tender and sweet with each other. Then when they don't get what they want, they feel misunderstood. They feel someone's controlling them. It's like somebody stepped on their foot and they're a monkey who doesn't know how to communicate. So they make big noises. And the more you step on their foot, the more louder their noises get. Why? Because monkeys can't fully communicate with words. And so we become monkeys. And if people could just get that anytime we're not, heart is not open, we're not feeling selfless and generous and giving of our hearts and, and happiness is not there, monkey took over. 
And not to say that doesn't happen to me as well, but boy, am I get gotten good at reflecting and embracing that, but not acting on that, not believing that. That's what we have to learn. These are like the, the, the free will, the choice that we can have if we learn to stay, stay in, in balance, okay? So there's more to say on that, but I know you just went in on my journey, so I'll stick to. I'm well, on the thing, and there she is. Within this group, you know, we talk a lot about the divine self and the ego and what you're talking about, you know, it's from a physiological point of view is a description of the ego and how That's it right. rises in us. So no, it's perfect. Keep, keep going. But well, continue that, on from the story in the massage parlor. Okay. okay. So there we are. And she's not a massage parlor, but she does uh, do massage. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we, we made love for three, three days. I thought this was the greatest thing. And there was this, after I finally ejaculated, there was this drop in energy yeah. and I no longer felt this attraction to her. I said it was time to move on. And then my sister drove my old car, my old car out to California as a gift to me. Uh, she wanted to come visit a guru out here, Muktananda. Now I already knew Muktananda because even when I was in the TM movement, he and I were buddies. Because I was, at, for six months, I came out to the national center of the TM place to run the show. And Marcia would give me these assignments, okay? That was the ideal society assignment. So anyway, so there I'm living at this place and he buys the place next door. And that was Muktananda Shaktipat place. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's all political with these guys really, because he wanted to meet me, I wanted to meet him. We go on walks together in the morning and he was wonderful, a wonderful human being. I introduced him to Maharishi and he, meaning that he set up a meeting between him and Maharishi in Salisburg, Switzerland, where Maharishi was living, and then Maharishi went to his ashram in India. And, you know, Maharishi saw that, that there's all this politics involved. But anyway, the, the point of it is Muktananda was enamored with me. I was enamored with him. I knew him very well. And now he was in, in, in America. So I thought, I'll go hang out at Muktananda's place. And my sister wanted to meet Muktananda. So she drove my car out from, Cal from Texas. The, California, the sweetheart. I left her at Muktananda. She ended up being one of his angels and she gave me the car back. And so now I'm driving around with my car. And what am I doing? I have no money except the credit card that she gave me where I could fill it up with gas that my parents had given her. So, so here I am <laughs> and I got my car. I got no money to eat, but I know, where, I know how to get gas. And I would drive from one woman's place to another woman's place to another woman's place because I was rather famous in the TM movement and people would tell me who lives here, where they live and contact and say, John wants to meet you. So I would go around and make love with all these different women. I'd read their palm and then I'd make love with them and they'd feed me dinner <laughs> and then I'd move on. I'd say, you know, I'm making up for lost time. I said that, you know, I've been a monk for nine years. Would you teach me how to make love to you? I'd like to know, you know, I, I have to catch up. And it's like all these women, okay, I'll teach you about sex with me. Because, you know, a normal guy, if you're not a monk for nine years, a woman feels like you should know how to do it. But first of all, because I'm this monk guy, very spiritual guy, they felt very comfortable telling me. And of course, talking about what you like in sex produces massive arousal inside of a woman because they don't talk about it. So she's sharing something she doesn't normally share. And that's called intimacy. Intimacy generates oxytocin. That makes her feel safe. Her estrogen levels soar and that causes orgasm. So I just had this string of, I felt like a little Krishna, all women to me were God. I just I had this divine vision during that time. I was a little bit crazy, to be quite honest. If I look back, I wasn't grounded. You know, I was one with the God. I was one with the universe. Yeah. Everybody was a piece of me and women were the best part of me. And I and just- That's an important point, that. isn't it, John? That you can, you can be in that, you can be too ungrounded and not grounded enough. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that was my brother's problem. You see, we're a very spiritual family. And my mother shared with me something. She said, when I, one time I was practicing in Switzerland, I was practicing uh, breath retention. Okay, so breath retention is where you, you build up your, your body's ability to hold your breath for a long time. So I finally figured it out. My tongue went up into my brain. My body was all sucked in. And I could sit there and look at a clock without a breath. And I went from three minutes to five minutes. And I'm sitting there watching it go to five minutes. And then there's massive, giant it was like Darth Vader coming in. It was like I, huge spaciousness. And I didn't know how to interpret it. It didn't seem evil, but it felt like, am I dying? <laughs> so I decided not to do breath retention anymore, but it was an amazing spiritual experience. And I told my mother about it. And she said, yes, that very same day, we had to put Jimmy in the mental hospital. Wow. And, and, and she said, she said, that's very interesting because when she would allow herself to go way out of the body, Jimmy would have these episodes. Because what you go through as a, your children will go through what you go through. And my brother was going through what I was going through, but he did not have the spiritual grounding. He yeah, would just go up there. And he said to me, he said, you know, lots of people in the mental hospital when he would go thought they were Jesus or thought they were God, you know, and they're, you know, this is what bipolar is. You get manic and you think you're, you're one with the universe. Well, we are one with the universe, but we're also a piece of the universe. Yes. They just forget that part of it. And you know, it's ironic that he, here I am over there in my experience and I'm experiencing that grace. I'm experiencing everything that happens in my life is that if it's a negative thing, it's to teach me a lesson so that I can grow and be of service to the world. And that I'm here to bring light into the world. You're here to bring light into the world. We're all here to bring light into the world. And we have these lessons and the world is conspiring always the intelligence of the universe, wherever we're off, it will give us a little pain to help us get back on track. Okay, so that's my understanding. It's a grounded understanding. What he would experience is that he, that he was from heaven and he was sent here to save the world and that he didn't fully experience that he was sent from heaven. And there are all these people in the world who are to help remind him of who he was. And every experience was to help remind him of where he came from and who he was. So he was like one of these manic people and then would crash down and be severely depressed. So he was actually having a very spiritual experience, but very ungrounded. And that's what happens to people when they don't have grounding, but they have some kind of awakening in the higher energy centers. You have to balance it. And what right. triggered it for him was taking drugs. Okay. He, when he was 19 or 20, he just, he had the time of his life having sex every day and taking LSD with his girlfriend. And it was the summer of love for him. <laughs> he never recovered. So that was, uh, he was just hard to get back in his body. And he even had a, a, a mantra that he'd, he'd gotten from outside his body. And when he would do it, what would happen is now his, the head would open up and he would go out and sometimes someone would come in and that was his insanity. Yeah. Somebody else yeah. would come in when he Absolutely. would go too far out. I agree, agree with that, John. So, John, how did you go from there to deciding that you wanted to devote your life around love and relationships? How did that well, transition happen? Again, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just yep. knew that I was one with the God and the God would guide me. And I'd drive in my car and I knew that women were heavenly and I would make love to them. And that was, and then, then my car broke. Okay, now I, my car broke down <laughs> and I can't go anywhere and I have no money. So I'm living on the beaches of Santa Monica and California, which is where all the homeless people go because the weather's pretty good. But at night, it's not so good. It's darn cold. 
And there I am living with homeless people. In those days, they'd all gotten out of the mental hospitals. Reagan had thrown them out of the mental hospitals. So a lot of crazy people on those beaches. And I'm there with them. And I was having a, a good time to a certain extent because I was teaching them around the fire and thinking, okay, you know, I'm here to help the world. I'll teach them my spiritual ideas and whatever. And, and one guy handed me a beer one night and he said, he said, here, John, have a beer. And I said, I don't drink. He said, no, you should have fun because we love to listen to you talk, but we have no idea what you're talking about. And suddenly when he said that, it was like the world came crashing down. Suddenly this sort of suffering of living on the beach homeless had no point to it, no meaning, no purpose. And that was a very important moment in my life because that's where I learned you can't help everybody. Everybody has their mission and purpose. And this is not my mission and purpose. And I need to find it. So it freed me. And I still go back to that. Everybody wants me to do everything for them and whatever, my resources and what I can do. I have one purpose. I found it. I stick to it. I don't have to do everything. I can't do everything. And if I could do everything, you wouldn't have to do anything. We all have a part to play in this. You can't, nobody can do it all. So anyway, so I just stick to what I'm, what, what comes to me to do. So then, and what has come to me and what has blessed me in my life, bringing forth this awareness, how men and women are different, but can harmonize and come together through love. Okay. So that was a big, big thing. So now I'm, I'm driving in my car and I finally break down. I basically go, oh, I don't know what to do. And guess what? Of course, I can call my mother anytime. So I call my mom, say, mom, I need help. <laughs> she said, all right, I'll send you some money, but you have to educate yourself to get a real job. I said, okay. okay. And so, so she sent me enough money to live comfortably and and I, I signed up for a computer training program. And my brother was already a computer trainer. I com- had a department at Stanford on computer programming. So I took my six month training. I learned COBOL. I could run the big giant computers. And under his supervision, John, I could- John, John I'm, I, I'm sorry. I cannot imagine you as a computer programmer. That just does not suit you. I am so good at programming. And that's why I'm, I'm programming people. I'm reprogramming people. I'm that's giving the program to follow. It's a if I imagine you're doing code. I'm sorry. Oh, I'll tell you, I was so good at it. I got to be the head of the department in three months. And now I was making twice as much money. And this is like, it was a Stanford Research Institute. Now, right. what I then did is I was doing this massive code project. And I would do it from my little computer, from my house, by the phone, it would go into the big thing. And when I would do it, I was like a, a, a eagle had its grips into my neck. Just painful is, so that's why you can say, I can't imagine you being a programmer. I was very good at it, but it caused massive pain and it paid really well. So I basically said, I gotta get out of this and I gotta do what I wanna do, which is to teach, but I needed money. And I didn't wanna be dependent on my mother. So I, I got enough money to saved up but it was so painful. That really is what motivated me. And again, pain motivates us when we're in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have any addictions and, and all that. So nothing to hide my pain from. So I, I made the money. And during that time, I was in love with, with Bonnie, my present wife of 34 years who passed two years ago. And I, you know, I, I'm out of that mode in this moment, but it's every day I do some grieving, but I'm pretty much through the painful part of it. Now it's just sweetness and love, but tears that come up every day. She's a big part of me. We, we all have to go through the grief, John. Yeah, so if you've been through grief, I'm going through the grief. So anyway, so 
I fell in love with Bonnie. She was one of the, one of my gopis. You know, I'm like a little Krishna going around making love to all these women and they love me. But I said, no, I'm not exclusive. And so I tried to, I fell in love with Bonnie in a more grounded place and I wanted to marry her. But I still had one other woman who was still hanging on. She wanted, she left her husband for me and she had lots of money and she was very supportive of me. And I like, is it Bonnie or is it this woman? Bonnie, I wanted to do things for, and this woman wanted to do things for me. So it was right. an understanding of gender at that point. In a sense, the first woman I married, she was the woman who pursued me. And then when that broke up, then I healed my heart and then I could come back and pursue Bonnie and married her for 34 years. Cause I was just out of balance at the time. I was learning about love because it all felt good cause it was all love. Yep. Anyway, so there I moved down to LA and I started my enlightened sexuality workshop. I started going to university and I started doing enlightened sexuality. And that's where I was teaching Tantra. Cause that was what I was into, you know, was how to have, how to have sex and make love. And very quickly the emphasis shifted from, and right away when I started teaching it, I said, now when people have sex and they don't have love, they're just animals and it's not going to elevate them in any way. And if you masturbate, it's just animalistic. It doesn't elevate you. It de-elevates you. But what you can do, I mean, you're not a bad person. It's just like you eat too much sugar. That's a, your same animal. You know, it's, your lower yeah, brain yeah. is controlling you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not going to enlighten you. So what I learned is, is uh, so I was teaching people about my experience and, and, and enlightened sexuality, how you could, how the purpose of the sex is for love. And if you actually clearly experience the love and your heart is wide open, the energy can be easily trained to go up. Now, other people teach Taoism, Tantra, and whatever. They all talk about these breathing techniques. You breathe and you pull the energy up and all that and circulate the energy. Uh, yeah. that's too analytical. It's not making love. You see, if you're actually making love and you know how to pace sex, which I taught, which is because I did it, is that the love, feeling the love, feeling the vulnerability in your heart, feeling the deep caring, that pulls the energy up as long as you pace yourself. It's just that men don't pace themselves. They get close to ejaculation and they get really excited and, and go for it rather than let it settle down and change right. positions. See, the whole idea of those old position changes where you see all the time is you get close to orgasm if you're a man and ejaculation, and then you stop, and then you start over with another position, and then you start over with another position. And every time you pull out to start into another position, you give it some pause, you do some kissing and touching and, and loving, kind of start over. When you do that, what happens, it makes the woman want you more. It increases her balance of hormones because she's getting close and she says, why'd you pull out? I wanted to come. I said, not yet, not yet. She, you regulate it by not ejaculating. So what you do is you get close, you pull out and now you get another position and then you start kissing her. And so where she's wanting it more than you want it. That's when your energy is more free and you can last as long as you want. And with practice, you can then, in the beginning it's hard because you're, it's like giving up cocaine, okay? The biggest addiction there is on the planet is ejaculation for men. And for women, it's grabbing orgasm rather than surrendering into something other than what normal orgasm is for women. It's a multi-orgasmic state of surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. And what you've just described also translates to just the normal day-to-day -day interrelationship between men and women. That's surrendering absolutely. women. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a perfect mirror of the both, isn't it? 
It's exactly, it's exactly it. And all those ideas are right there. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh, yes. The rubber band theory, men will get close, they go in and then they pull out. They go in and then they pull out. This is the nature of life. If you go in and stay too long, your estrogen goes up, your testosterone goes down. And when it comes to sex, that's an ejaculation. When it comes to relationship, he gets mad and argues and throws a temper tantrum or pouts or any of that. That's from too much estrogen. Men have to have higher testosterone, less estrogen and try to balance them. So this is like learning a whole new thing. It's like amazing how this information has come through me. And the years, every year, something new comes into it. But that was the beginning of it, is learning how to not be addicted to ejaculation. I can see now, as you're telling this story, how that eventually led to these realizations that you had about the inter interacting of energy between men and women. Yeah, it is all about energies. It is. And the key there, but the most important thing when I talk about sex, if you, you know, there's... I have a class on sex online at my website, marsvenus.com. Gotta let people know there's more that you can get there. But the, yep. the, the class teaches making love and making love can be with ejaculation. There's no problem with that. It's yep. just, if you wanna be like a Superman athlete, you know, like these triathlons, you know, and I don't wanna be that, but these guys go and they run and they, you know, they, they do these big, long, amazing things. They're into it. I'm not into it. I'm into it when it comes to sex, okay? So, and so I don't, think, you know, when I look at those guys, I'm not jealous or anything, because that's not my thing. So I just don't want to sound like, you know, hours of, of tantric sex is like the greatest thing in the world. It is for me, but those runners are in some kind of high as well. What I'm talking about is making love. That's the whole key is understanding how we can come together and feel through sex more love. Because what happens is sex recharges us in our capacity to love. And then the world depletes us to a great extent. And sex regenerates it, brings it back. And now in Taoism, they talk about the sex energy turns into the chi energy. And the chi energy turns into the shin energy, this more spiritual energy. But you've got to have all three. And the sex energy, if you just release it, then you don't get as much chi energy. You still can get some. And you don't get as much shin energy. So when did the Mars, Venus idea sort of formulating you? When, when did that happen? Okay, so what happened then is it was in my first first marriage was with Barbara D'Angelis and we, you know, I left Bonnie and I wanted to marry Bonnie and she said, you're just not ready because, you know, I've been, I've been in an open relationship. I told her, you know, I had somebody else and everybody knew, but she just felt, and I said, now I want to be monogamous and I just want you. And she said, no, I don't think you're ready. And there were other details with the whole thing, but I went on, moved on. And Barbara was just come live with me and I'll help you. And she was like my assistant and starting my own seminars. And she edited my, uh, my first book. And then when we got divorced, I gave it to her. So then she got a best-selling book, which says ideas developed by John Gray, but the book is hers. And that was a whole trip. You know, when she gets the bestseller on a book I wrote, but see our divorce agreement with Barbara and I was that she got everything. I can give everything away because I know I generate it. You know, that's part of spirituality is when you get, you're one with the universe, your intention pulls everything in. I'm one with the will of God. And on a spiritual level, you feel that way. Things come to me. And when they don't come to me, there's a lesson I got to learn. These are just basic spiritual experiences that led me along my way. So I gave everything to Barbara and I had to start anew. And part of the divorce agreement was that I couldn't teach any of the ideas that we had developed in our workshop called Making Love Workshop. So you imagine, you know, I built this company, six, six, year, six cities, 
100 people a weekend taking a three-day class, a $300 workshop. This was my bread and butter, how I made money. <laughs> Suddenly, if we're breaking up, I can't, I'd be a hypocrite to say I can teach you how to make love work. So she kept the seminar. And then I started another company, which was called the Heart Seminar, because my heart was broken, okay? My wife fell in love with another man, <laughs> wanted to be with him. I couldn't make money as an expert on relationships now. And I, and, 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 and I felt so rejected. I was going through hell of talking about grieving a loss. It brought up all this stuff. And that's a huge story about healing the heart. But after nine months of healing the heart, I just feeling good again. I was teaching my heart seminar. It was doing quite well. Then I happened to be driving to San Francisco and thought I'd drop by Santa Cruz and give Bonnie a call. As soon as I heard her voice, as soon as I heard her voice, I heard the bells in heaven. Now that was one of the experiences that I had as a yogi is I could hear the heavenly music, maybe my favorite experience of all. Mm -hmm. Hours and hours, it's always going on. It's, that, it's what the, the great composers called the, the sounds of the universe. I think they called it that, something like that, the music of the universe. And they would just tap into it. And it's always going, it's always new. It's like a fractal of sound. And I was in you know, deep meditation. I, I'd be in silence. And when I was in silence for many, many days fasting, I would hear the music. It was so amazing. So that law, I never heard the music again, ever since I started having sex <laughs> and ejaculating. I would ejaculate as well sometimes. After Catherine, the music went away. All those extra Marvel comic books went away. But I still felt one with God and felt one with the universe. I just didn't have all the extras. And but I had sex and I liked that too. That was really great and love in the body. And so this was women were my big deal at that point. So I married Bonnie and, and teaching the heart seminar and everything was wonderful. But now I'm living with Bonnie who's more feminine than my first wife. And I'm realizing women are really can be very different. And uh, we had our first baby after nine months. We, we actually, as soon as we had the conversation that we're gonna have a child before we even got married. We were using birth control, she got pregnant. I mean, that little daughter of mine, she was like waiting for Bonnie to say, yes, it's okay, we could have a child. <laughs> she got pregnant that night. And so she came in and when she was born, uh, nine months later, we got married a few months after that. And then, not, and then six months after that, we, little Lauren was born and at the delivery, uh, Bonnie was torn in the delivery. So there was a tear and they had to treat her. And I, you know, took care of the baby. And then we got home and she was taking uh, pain pills and to treat her pain. And I stayed with her for six days, helping everything. And she kept saying, no, John, you got to go back to work. We need to make money and you have to go back and counsel people. They need you there. So I said, okay, uh, I'll do that. And just, if you need something, call me. And then when I, I came home that night, she was all crying and she was upset. And she said, you know, I've been in pain all day. And I said, why didn't you call me? And she said, well, I ran out of pain pills. I called your brother. I didn't want to bother you. And I said, you should have called me. And somehow should have got into the conversation and also nobody sleeping for a week. Uh, <laughs> it turned into this big argument and fight. So as we started raising our voices and arguing about my brother and how good he is and he is good, he's not, all this stuff. Then, I just stopped talking, which is what I'm good at. I stopped talking and walked out of the room. And as I'm going to the door, she says to me, John Gray, stop. Okay, it was like, okay, I can listen to that. And she said, John Gray, stop. You're a fair weathered friend. Whenever I'm sweet loving Bonnie, you're always there for me. But when I'm not sweet loving Bonnie, you're out the door. So don't go, just don't talk. 
walk over here and put your arms around me. Now I calculated that and I said, now, if we don't talk, we can't argue. And she just wanted to put her arm around her. I can do that. So I put my arm around her and she just melted into me crying and crying and crying. And I felt myself softening and softening and softening. And I thought to myself, my gosh, if I was angry at somebody, the last thing I want is for them to come and hold me. That's the last thing I need. Get away. I need to be alone. And she melted my heart by crying in my arms. I said, what just happened? This is a phenomenon that I don't think any men understand. And I don't think any women understand why men walk out that door. So wow. that, that was the beginning of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And then I began exploring what other things do we men not know about women? Because I already knew men didn't know about women when it came to sex. But now when it comes to relationship, what these differences were. So that became the beginning of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And that's now spawned into 32 books, I think. Is that right? 28, 28. 28 books. Okay. A lot of them behind me right over there. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So for you, obviously God works in your life and you, you feel that all the time. And, and where you're at now after having... an hour. I'm wondering if I could take a pause and you could read re whatever you want to do. I'm going to use the restroom and be right back. Okay. Not a problem, John. Please go right ahead. The divine does work in our life that there are these moments when we can recognize them when something's happening in our life that truly sometimes we judge as perhaps being a bad thing or pain, uh, but it's actually a, a wake up call to send us in the right direction. And those moments are there all the time. And there's just so many uh, takeaways from what John has just spoken about. So if any of you have any questions, please um, pop them up in the chat. Um, and we can certainly ask John when he comes back from the toilet. He's a fairly entertaining character, as, as you can see, and he's had a pretty wide and varied life experience, as you can also see. So uh, th there's a lot of things there that we can certainly uh, take away as these common experiences of life as we live it inside this universe. And when we start to recognize those common life experiences, you know, we can, we can certainly see that we're not alone that God, the divine, works in our life. And, you know, for John, he's lived a life to this point of being devoted to that and really um, focused on serving God to the best of his ability. So, John, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that little pause. <laughs> I appreciate you. My pleasure. Your My time pleasure. Well, I had the opportunity, there. I would be going as well, but I have to stay yeah. here. So I'll just have to practice holding it in. <laughs> oh, well, maybe I can continue on. <laughs> and you can take your break. Okay. I, I don't know how much time we have. I can talk longer, but if you have a limited amount of time, we can, you tell me how much more time we have. Yeah, look, we've probably got another 10, 10, 15 minutes. Okay. And then I'll keep that in mind because, you know, we're only talking about up to 40 years old and I'm almost 70 now. And it's, yeah, I know. it's so, exponential so on, from there. Obviously, you know, being with Bonnie for, for that period of time um, and then losing her, uh, that's very hard for anybody. And, you know, you briefly mentioned, you know, going through the grief in the last couple of years since she passed. So how, how did you cope with that? How did you deal with that? Totally devastated. Yeah, understandably. Totally devastated. Uh, now, always there's a person behind me, my soul. Uh, the way I experienced uh, it's the embodiment. There's a part of me which is non-physical and it's embodied 
And it always feels as though it's coming from behind me just because the perception we have is always like this. And what's missing in everybody's perception is the experience of behind you. So I also, you know, I'm everywhere, but the experience, it's, it's the most comforting. That it's my favorite part of whatever enlightenment I have is the soul yes. embodiment. Yeah. Uh, it's always there and it knows that no matter what I go through, everything gets better. And it also knows that while I'm, my monkey brain is grieving, because see, the grief is the attachment of the monkey brain. Okay, this is, and you never want to deny the monkey brain. You want to bring the light into the monkey brain, into the sexual brain, which is the instinctive brain. Yeah. That's, you want to bring it in that you don't want to deny that. You embrace it like it's a little child that needs love and support and you don't act on it. You don't, child says, oh, the ghosts are tormenting me. There's no ghost tormenting you. See. I feel he doesn't love me. No, he does love you. <laughs> you just feel that way, but you don't believe your feelings if they're negative. So basically just simple. So the soul back here always knows, but at the same time, I'm fully engaged in this and I'm prepared for this, but oh, I wanted to die. I basically, just to connect with, I remember one of these coming back from a trip a few weeks after he died and, and uh, rushing home from the airport because I had some things scheduled and even she said, you should do it, you know? So I, I went off and did this thing three days after she died. It was already scheduled and, you know, so I went and I came back and I'm racing home from the airport. And I realized I always race home from the airport. And why do I do it? Because I want to see my wife. I can't wait to see my wife. So it's those moments where you, where you start re reflecting everything, you know, that she did for me or what she's a part of my life, just so, so potent and such a knife into my heart and that has healed there's no longer i can cry and everything but the grieving is no longer painful i just you know people say they carry their pain around forever that's because they don't know how to heal pain yeah uh and, and they just it's an art and it's a science to do it but for me because it was so deep it was all the way into the instinctive brain because you know we've been together 34 years married 40 years you know i started having sex with her 42 years ago and except for two years with my first wife. So I'm bonded with her down in my primitive brain. You know, this brought up the deepest, deepest issues for me of abandonment and fear. And my first reaction is I don't want to live. You know, yeah. if I didn't have children and I didn't have responsibility to teach the world, although my children were more important when it came to that. Yeah. I, I have no point in being here. I don't care about being here. I, what is the purpose of me being here? Why do I even care about, I mean, I was, I kicked everybody out of my house. I didn't let anybody come over. And I was for months wailing, wailing. The same thing I saw the ancient people doing. I was once in Kathmandu and went to the, the ghats where they burn people's bodies when they die. Yes. And they have a ritual. And these are old rituals where the wife, if her husband dies, she now doesn't have a husband. She throws herself onto the fire. Wow. She wants to die. I wanted to die. I mean, I was like wanting to throw myself onto a fire. At the same time, my soul said, you, you know, I'm not going to do that. And I watched it as these women, their husbands die and they put them on the, on the fire. And I put my wife into the oven. Okay. I carried her from her death to there and did the whole thing and grieved for hours there. And then I let myself just be this primitive person because I'd seen them that what they do now, at least this is 20, many years ago, 30 years ago, but they, the, the, the body is put on the, on the burning thing and the mother, the wife 
screams, wails and wails, and she tries to get into the fire and her family holds her back. So that's all part of the ritual. They don't actually let her go in, but they used to. Uh, but now you get to have the feeling of, no, I don't want to do it. Because this is this wailing part of us of a very primitive bond. Now, Freud explained that bond. And I just want to, it's such a great insight he had, which is, is called need integrate. When you bond with somebody, and it's much more when you bond sexually, when you bond with somebody, you're, we all need love. The deepest part of us needs love. The most childlike part of us, the deep feeling part of us knows it needs love. And when we find someone who loves us, we feel ecstatic. That's falling in love. We're just like the, the angels in heaven open up, which happened for me. I could, when the bells rang, by the way, I never finished that. I had to use the restroom. Then I remembered for an instant in heaven planning to be with Bonnie. This, and so I, within a month, I was married to Bonnie. I was proposed to Bonnie. I just had to give her time to warm up to my proposal. Yeah, I knew it. It was, it was written in the stars, written in my heart, written in heaven. But I needed to go through le levels before I could recognize that and know that in this earthly incarnation. So, and, you know, about a week before she died, the kids were saying, they were talking to her and they were saying, what, what did, uh, tell us about how you met dad. And she said, oh, your father. I didn't know who he was, but I came out of Lake Tahoe and when I saw him, I knew he was my soulmate. It was so sweet. It took a while for us to finally get married, but she said, I knew he was my soulmate. And the kids that asked me, dad, is that how you felt? I said, well, actually, I felt like I wanted to spend the night with her. <laughs> <laughs> and I made sure I did, by the way, I made sure I did. Yeah. Uh, it was a very sweet. Now talk about destiny. And You're going to talk about Freud. You're going to talk about okay, Freud. Freud need integrate. Thank you. I get a little scattered if I'm talking about my life because we're talking about, you know, 70 years. Ago. Okay. So Freud says, need integrate. I need love. And now someone comes and loves me. The brain changes and it shifts from I need love to I need you. You are love. So it's not like I need love. I need you. And if you're not here, then I can't have love. That's the pain of grief. To the primitive brain, it has to take time for brain plasticity to reroot and experience that I can still have love. Right. So this takes time of it's the grieving process. And it's the grieving process if done properly. Now I do a whole thing on grieving, which obviously we're not going to talk the whole process, but Many people who grieve, many people don't grieve and they can't ever even think about that other person. You know, they move away. They don't want to look at anything. It's too painful to bring it up. You know, if somebody yeah. says to me, you know, where's Bonnie? And I said, well, she's died. Oh, I'm so sorry to bring that up. I'm happy for them to bring it up. I said, what did you like about Bonnie? And I cry together with them, you know, so yeah. <laughs> it's all okay with me. I don't need to avoid it. So some people avoid it and it just limits their ability to, to love again. Other people, really get into the grieving and they never heal. Why they don't heal is they don't know the process of healing. And they did this MRI scan of parents who lost a child and they're depressed, they never get better years later, they're always feeling guilty and horrible and life has no meaning, just like I felt right when Bonnie died, after she died, but they never stopped feeling that. And it's a knife in their heart. And so they take antidepressants and they take all these treatments and anti-anxiety medicines and so forth. And I relate to it. I mean, I didn't sleep for a year practically because I was haunted by every mistake I ever made in our marriage, you know, but I learned from them all. A part of the grieving process is the process of feelings and then learn from it, from something from it. 
and dedicate yourself to being a better person. So what they found is with those people who were never healing the, the grieving, they put them in MRIs and they found that the brain lit up when they had showed pictures of their children, of the child that they lost, same part of the brain as if they just took cocaine. It's right. addictive. Negativity is addictive. Just as men are addicted to ejaculation, women are addicted to complaining. Complaining right. activates that very same thing. It's focusing on what's missing. When you verbalize what's missing to somebody where you're trying to change them, it becomes an addiction. Now, talking about your feelings without trying to change someone is not addictive. It's talking about your feelings and your emotions with the intent to change somebody. Because you see, the monkey brain uses negative emotions to communicate, to get what I want. If you're not giving me what I want, I'm angry with you. You should give me what I want. I'll hurt you. Or I'm so sad. You should feel sorry for me. Or I'm afraid. I need help. Or I can run. You know, or I feel guilty. And now you'll feel you can trust me again because I have a conscience. So yeah. people use... The monkey brain uses these negative emotions to communicate, but it's primitive communication. It doesn't work at all if we want to be enlightened beings. Yeah. So we, we have to use language. See, they couldn't use language. And when we, when we start to have negative emotions, we are not in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. That's proven. That's yeah. a stress response. And for men, it means their estrogen levels are too high. And for women, it means their estrogen levels are too low. And that's proven. This is like all proven, but nobody's ever explained it in terms of relationships before. That's the amazing thing about beyond, beyond Mars and Venus. It explains everything that goes on between couples in terms of what you needed at that time that you didn't know and how you communicate in a way that only made it worse. So it's a tough book to read because you realize you're responsible for your life and whatever happens. It's a good yeah. book to read. A good book to read. On, uh, someone asked a question on the chat, and um, where do you where do you see your life going now? You know, Bonnie's past. Oh my gosh, I'm practicing the real cities now. Uh, also, I will continue teaching the world. Uh, this is my purpose: is to teach the Mars Venus material and what goes along with it. But yeah. what goes along with it is spirituality. You know, I'll, I write more books on spirituality. I write, I've got a book in my head on grieving. I've got another updated version on Mars, Venus for women. When women are like, quote, alpha women, uh, they make more money than men. There's a whole new set of dynamics that we really have to, I've got lots of stuff. Another book on when you're, one of the partners has an affair, how to use that to grow in love instead of get a divorce. I've got a book, you know, this is like, these are the big questions that come up. You know, I've got a book, but my favorite book that eventually will come out, I've been writing it in my head for 20, over 25 years, right. is my book on meditation. Okay. I have a very unique meditation, uh, which is, mm, you know, it, it's uh, in terms of that people who aren't inclined to meditate often are more advanced than meditation. Now, what that means is they find meditation boring. Yes. Now, and some people meditate and it's fine and that's great because they're using a technique that works for where they are. But some people actually are bored because it doesn't do anything for them in the same way that if you were in, if you were, uh, in school and you were learning one plus one is two, that'd be very exciting in your alphabet and putting words and, and then multiplication and then division. Oh, that was also exciting for me. I learned fractions in third, degree, third grade. That was just really exciting. But if that's all I ever learned was getting to that level and then they kept me doing that, it would be boring. There's advanced techniques that actually are easier when you're ready for them. Yep. Impossible when you're not ready for them. And let me give you an example of that to everybody who's listening. If, can I do that? Just please, give, please Maybe some people already know this. 
But if you put your hands up like this, everybody does this. Now, if you've been listening to me talk for an hour, we're, we're one, see? So whatever I experience, you're gonna experience through your fingertips. So the fingertips activate. If you look at Jesus, he's doing, he's doing this. What he's actually doing, he's sending, he's blessing with his thumb. He's pulling energy from the heavens and pulling it up from the earth, which is a very advanced state where you can do both at the same time and direct the energy. So I'm not gonna be Jesus, I'm not Jesus. But basically it's just simply put your fingers up in the air like this. And if you would do that as well, I know you're our host, but if you would just, just it doesn't have to move your fingers, just, you know, say it. You go. just show us your fingers, that's it. Cause I wanna see them, I'm connecting. Now, if you're connecting with me, you'll start to feel energy. Now, some people can feel it already, but the masses don't until somebody comes along and activates the fingertips. So now we do a little prayer. So I can do any prayer, but I'll just do one that I do, which is kind of non-secular, secular. It's kind of secular, non-secular, but it's great spirit, Holy Spirit, divine God, divine goddess, whoever your higher power is, we open our hearts to you. Please come. Fill us with your love and light right now. In this moment, fill us all with your love and light. Activate our fingertips to receive your love and light. Now, if you believe in angels, you can increase it even more. Dear God, our hearts are open to you. Please come, fill us with your love and light. Right now, this moment, send your angels, send our angels to bless us in this moment and activate our fingertips to receive your energy of love and light. Now just feel that energy coming to you. Let it come into your fingers, your hands, to your arms, to your chest, your heart, your liver, your belly, all around, your legs, up your spine, filling your brain with light. Imagine your brain just lighting up. Have a little smile on your face. And imagine you're looking up at a big, big, tall tree. So that's level one of this exercise. How did that feel? Well, for me, John, beautiful. They're all muted, so they can't tell you, but I'm if, sure- If they could go like this, let me know if you felt that energy. It's amazing. So yeah, if you you're can definitely, You can definitely feel it in your fingertips. Uh, I could certainly feel it at the moment that you said it. Uh, you can yeah, feel our, it. This is the antennas. This is, we're designed to feel through our fingertips. That's how you touch people. That's how you touch the divine energy of the universe. Beautiful. So you just, and after this experience, that's an activation. Anybody can do this. That people tell me, I did that one little thing. Now my meditation, so let's say you do a mantra meditation, just feel your energy in the fingertips while you're doing it. That's all. Listen to music and feel the energy in your fingertips. So that's my book. There's 40, there's actually 108 different levels to that meditation. Sometimes it takes me six or eight hours to get through them. But it is, it's like climbing a mountain every day of going through levels of that energy. That was just activation of the energy. Then you send energy out, take away all the stress in your body. The darkness goes out. Then you pull in pure light. Then you send energy back, offering all your energy up, emptying out. That creates a sustained flow of energy. 
Then you're circulating the energy through your third eye. Then your crown chakra opens up and that brings it down. That's seven levels. There's another 108 levels. There's like, this, this is so, it's like climbing mountains of greater experiences. And to me, you know, the, the city I'm experiencing now, these are the natural powers that come from higher consciousness, not the stuff that, that I did experience before. This is the, the basic eight cities, which is, and one of them, I've been living them, but this is one which is the extension of humility, which is shrinking. When I go into nature, the trees seem like the Grand Canyon. It's, I'm in awe of the trees because they're taller. And so, and suddenly I'm tiny. That's one of the cities is feeling tiny. And on another level, it's humility. And then there's another one, you feel like a giant. It was all in Gulliver's travels. You know, he was like suddenly little and he was big. You just feel that you're huge and you can barely fit into the room. It's just a feeling that you have. Then there's another one of groundedness where you feel very, very solid and heavy. And then another one where you feel light. So I always, I'm lighthearted, you feel light, but your whole energy just lightens up. Then there's, this is the other one, which is so good after that. That's what I had when I didn't know it because they weren't fully developed, but when I was with my guru, it was to become, I became him. And, and that's what, you know, complete service and selflessness, you can merge with your partner. That's also sex and making love is merging with your partner. I'm yours, you're mine, we are one. So I'm very good at that one, the oneness. But what comes after oneness, when you ground lightness and heaviness, then you can become, and then when you can those three together, then you have the wish-fulfilling tree. Everything you wish for comes your way. Everything you need comes your way. This is all like real, and I, I live it. The other day, one little example, just the other day, I work out in the gym. I love working out in the gym now because we can go back to the gym. So I'm really pushing hard to get it back. And, and my trainer had me do some really heavy weights. And clearly I put a big strain on my lower back with this one, one lift. The next day my back went out. The next day I happened to have an appointment with a body worker, which I haven't been to in years and years, but somebody said, you just got to experience this guy. So this was made a month in advance. The day my back goes out, the body worker is there ready to treat me and he cured my frozen back in one session. See, it's like everything happens in advance for your benefit. The more you're in tune with your soul's mission and purpose, magical things are happening all the time. So you live in this place of freedom from fear and that is a place of love and that's a possibility. And that's not even the, the, the end of it, that the, the Seventh one is, again, I'm kind of living it to some extent, but it will be much greater, is the ability to influence others. And of course, you know, Men From Mars, 100 million readers of that book, at least, they're like a huge influence. So the ability to inspire and influence others, not to control, you can't control people, but you can inspire them. And, and the last one is simply, the alignment with your will tends to be one with the divine will. And it's not like you're controlling the world, it just things fit in the way it's supposed to be. It's as if it always already is whatever you're wanting. Beautiful. John, thank you so much. I think this is the fourth uh, podcast that we've done together and I have to say they keep getting better, John. Uh, the, well, wealth <laughs> knowledge, the wealth of knowledge that you have uh, to give is, is truly breathtaking and extensive and um you know on behalf of everyone here in the community i just want to thank you for your time and you know sharing the gifts that you've accumulated over your lifetime it truly is a blessed life so thank you so much uh, we are so appreciative of it 
and uh, we'll make sure this is spread uh, far and wide. For those of you uh, that are listening, please check out uh, marsandvenus.com. There you'll find John's extensive uh, library of books, uh, 28 in total, plus many, many other resources that he's accumulated uh, over his lifetime. So uh, once again, John, thank you so much. I have to just say one thing. I feel a little embarrassed talking about myself all this time, but Not you asked all. me to do that. And I really feel more comfortable teaching and sharing what I've learned and my examples in the context of teaching. So I'm not, I'm not so sure I really was I that helpful. Say, I have to say though, that in you sharing, you know, yourself and that journey, I, I think, you know, in, when you did coach for that toilet break, I share with everyone that, um, you know, you giving us that story and the common things that we all find in our own lives, yes. where we can see the divine show up, we can see God show up uh, yes. in our life. So I think it was very profound to actually do that. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you all for being here. John, again, thank you. And uh, I'll see you again very soon, hopefully. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now.